about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Good evening. Tonight we'll be reading Esther 2, 1 to 18 on a mysterious page of your Bible. So have a look around for that and I'll just start reading anyway. Later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young, women who, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given, to her, was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the, she- to the care of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. 
and Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberty. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, friends. It is a joy to be with you. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting or you're online tonight, it is great to have you with us in this cold tomb of a church full of life. We are considering the book of Esther now and in the next four weeks following. And Esther is a very interesting book in, in many ways. In, in some ways, it is the best candidate for person who, from the Bible who will become a Disney princess. You know, rags to riches. This is the orphan in a foreign city, the nobody who doesn't even have parents, is raised by her uncle and becomes the queen of an empire. It's a wonderful story. It's a candidate to be one of these or maybe even one of these more digital princesses. I don't know. But Esther really, 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 really is much more complicated and ambiguous and difficult than any Disney princess's story. And we have a temptation often with stories like this in Scripture that aren't neat or clean or obvious to Disneyfy them, to cut around the complexity and make it a bit neater. Black and white is a bit more comfortable than grey. But the book of Esther is precisely in the Bible to make us feel uncomfortable. Here's what Richard Held, Rachel Held Evans says. Esther may have been a queen, but she wasn't the queen of our Western, Disney-influenced imagination. Her story takes place in an ancient Near Eastern culture that regarded women as property, a culture in which Jews like Esther were struggling to retain their identity and safety amidst violence, power, excess debauchery, and the volatility of the Persian Empire. This is the world of Esther. This is the world in which she becomes queen. And as we journey with her, we are actually summoned into the gray reality, the compromised reality often of our own discipleship. To to take seriously the spaces we think that God might be absent as places of his remarkable presence. So let the awkwardness ring in your heart a little bit tonight as you follow the summons to follow God into the gray. What we're going to do in these first two chapters, get a Bible open or a phone open. I I couldn't remember where Esther was in the Bible because I've used my digital phone so often. Uh, Get it open. We're going to do chapter 1 and chapter 2 tonight. Um, And what we're going to do is go through the three main characters as they're introduced, Xerxes, Vashti, and Esther, and let them orient us to the story and what it's about and who it's for. And the first one we get is King Xerxes. What we learn from him is that Esther is about, and two, life under an indulgent and compromised ruler. King Xerxes of the Persian 
Empire. Here's how it starts in chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Here's a map of what that is. That's Egypt all the way over to India and kind of up toward the edge of Greece. Okay? This is a vast ancient superpower over much of the ancient Near Eastern world in the 5th century BC. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media and the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. You know, you might be thinking, well... A month is a long time for an election. It kind of gets in the way of governing. How about inviting every official you have over your vast empire to a six-month-long bender all about you? This is a remarkable picture we get of Xerxes straight up. And it's supposed to be a little ridiculous. Uh, he, uh, this 180 days displaying who he is and how great he is... Uh, is not the mark of a remarkable ruler, nor is what follows next. After the, Here's a picture from 300. I just couldn't help myself. I mean, the chapter kind of makes sense, but it's obviously wrong. Uh, but when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Wine was served in goblets of gold, and each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. Right? Six months of partying all about me, then seven days of unlimited bar tab with your own personal golden goblet in the city of Susa. This is the king of Persia. Uh, it's supposed to be a really self-indulgent, intoxicating picture. He's literally getting the whole world drunk online. This is the person in charge of the Persian Empire. Now, did you notice what hasn't happened in this book yet? No mention of anything to do with the rest of the Old Testament. No mention of God, temples, Torah, a prophet, a priest, a king something, anything to do with the rest of God's promises to his people. You just start with this self-obsessed, indulgent king. In fact, you don't get to anything Jewish until halfway through chapter 2, and even then it's a side comment. What happens here is literally the Jewish faith is submerged in the story. And what we instead begin with is a self-indulgent, compromised, selfish leader who is leading literally everyone to become intoxicated with himself. This gives us a clue as to what this book is and who it is for. In the 5th century BC, a lot of Jews had gone home to Israel, but there were many still living abroad, submerged in the Persian Empire. Far from home, far from temple, far from the normal Torah practices of the land of Canaan. This is a book to people who feel submerged in another culture. Who feel 
uh, overcome by the glittering, glorious, powerful, intoxicating effect of it. Intoxication is, an, is not a metaphor in this book, but it is through the rest of scriptures for powerful foreign kings. They get others intoxicated with themselves and their ways of power. They take hold of you through their beautiful things and they take hold of your life. This is us, isn't it? Submerged in another culture, a digital culture of endless scrolling of many beautiful, glittering, powerful, wonderful things that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. We too are submerged in a culture and in a land far from home. This is a letter to us, a book to us, to navigate that space. And at the beginning of this book, it at least gets us to pause for a moment and ask the question, I wonder how submerged I am in this land wonder what I have become intoxicated with. At the beginning of the chapter, the things that intoxicate us are beautiful things, stunning things, wonderful things that grab hold of us. What are we to do in a time like that, in a place far from home? Well, that's where we get to the second character, Vashti, the, the first queen of the Persian Empire in the story. Now, she doesn't stick around for long. But what she shows us this book is about is the need for action, the need for response, the need to use your agency and not just be swept up into the thing you are part of. Here's her story. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. And on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, we all know what that means, right? He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, that's their names, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Right, so for six months, he's displayed the beauty of his kingdom, his wealth, his power, all of that. And for one night, he wants to display the beauty also of his wife. Now, normally what would happen at this moment in a banquet when everyone is drunk, the king would send for his, this is a terrible thing, but it's just the truth of the time, his lower tier wives, his concubines, to come in and to appease the drunken men. That's what would happen. And what he does instead is ask for the queen to come and to demean herself in front of all these ogling, drunk men. It's an awful scene. And she's being asked to publicly dishonor herself in an awful way. What does she do? Here's a painting of her by Edwin Long. When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. That's it. The banquet and that. That's all she does in the whole book. But in six months and one week of an unending bender, she was the only person who finally said, you know what, boys, I think that's enough. Who stood up and refused to continue to be a part of it to the cost of her place in the empire in the end. This is a courageous, wonderful moment from Vashti. And it's an original moment where she chooses to act, to respond, to use her agency and to not just get swept along in what is happening. 
And Vashti casts a shadow over the book because many characters will be summoned to a same moment to use their agency and act. The book of Esther is remarkably uninterested in what motivates you to do things. You don't hear about Vashti. You don't hear about Mordecai. And very little about Esther even. What it cares about is action. Using your agency to respond to what is happening. What happens in response to this incident is a little bit comedic. It's supposed to be comedic. All the the Xerxes in these chapters is supposed to be a little bit ridiculous. His wife stands up to him. He throws a tantrum. He gets lots of advisors to come in and tell him what to do because he can't think for himself. And they tell him to get rid of Vashti. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. In response to this incident, there's this decree across the whole empire, from Egypt to India, about how to relate to your husband. It's supposed to look ridiculous, uh, an over-response to something he should have just dealt with privately. But before we go on, just a side point to, to what we're talking about tonight. This passage has been, in a few books about marriage, used as an example of why women should always submit to what their husbands want, regardless of what it is. And I just want to tell you that that is completely abhorrent and a complete misuse of this passage. And it's just not a part of this text. This passage is about Vashti courageously refusing what is happening around her and the self-indulgence and evil of it. If there is one thing you want to talk about from this passage in the marriage, it would be about actually the objectification of women. Because that is the heinous thing on view which she refuses to be part of. And that uh, heads into Esther chapter 2. So just as a side point, no, definitely not. Abhorrent use of this text. This text is about courage and action. And every character that comes after this is measured against Vashti's courage. That's why that that bit in yellow is so important for the rest of the book. Also, that the king give her, Vashti's royal position, to someone else who is better than she. Now, in that context, he means someone who will do what we want. But as we see the story unfold, it's the question that hangs over Esther. What will Esther be made of? Will she have the same moral fiber and courage that Vashti did? Will Mordecai have it? This is the, the measure and mark of action in a gray world. Vashti. And it summons us to consider whether we are surrendering our agency and energy and gifts and time that is put at our disposal because we are paralyzed by anxiety or fear? Will we at times like Vashti refuse the culture we are submerged in? But this call to action, as we see it happen in Esther, is actually much more complicated. What we see as Esther is introduced into the story is that she is, as we are, 
compromise people in compromised places. What happens next is complicated and really quite awful. Uh, the king sends out an edict across his whole province, sends out people to, to make it happen, to gather every beautiful woman into the capital city of Susa. And all of them are given a ridiculous length of cosmetic treatment a whole year. It's ridiculous again, like all the length of all the things in chapter 1. And then each of them will appear and go to the king for one night and then be part of his harem for the rest of their lives. So these women are plucked out of their families, out of their context, and put at his disposal, and that's their life. It's awful. It is awful. And in the midst of that, one of them will become queen. It's in the midst of all this happening that we meet Esther. Now there was in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemi, son of Kish, who'd been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. You're thinking, finally, something to do with the Old Testament. These people, Mordecai, he was part of the captivity taken out from God's judgment from Israel to Babylon. And Babylon has since been conquered by Persia, and this is part of the Jews who've been taken from their homeland. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he'd brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. This is a wonderful little story of Mordecai loving his cousin. It's a beautiful thing. And then what happens next is we learn that Esther, like everyone else, is conscripted into the citadel of Susa because she's beautiful. Brought into this awful, compromised position. And at this point as readers, we're kind of wondering what's happening Should Mordecai have let this happen? Should Esther in some way have just refused it to happen and maybe lost her life in the process? When you look at it, you think, well, no, no, she's been taken into the citadel. This is forced upon her. She is compelled and conscripted. This is not within her power to oppose. But then it gets even more complicated. As she navigates her way in the harem, This phrase keeps popping up. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who was in charge of the harem, and she pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. When the turn came for Esther, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. And then the king was, when Esther spent a night with him, was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set up a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Everywhere Esther goes in this scenario, that phrase pops up, won his favor. And it's an interesting one, because in other stories with similar characters and similar situations, the phrase is found favor. And it's much more passive the phrase, one is favor, great translation from the NIV, is just a little more active. It speaks of her in some way actively winning people in process of this all happening. 
And maybe it speaks to just the presence of her beauty and its ability to captivate. Or maybe it, it, it gives us a hint of the charisma and the, the wonderful political ability that Esther has that will, she'll, she'll show in chapter 4 and 5. But she is actively responding to what is happening to her. She is not just being a victim pulled in, though she is a victim of something awful. She has not surrendered her agency, and she is responding and acting. But how complicated is that? Responding and and acting means willingly and moving toward the bed of a foreign king. She is in a fantastically compromised position. There is no clean right or wrong for her. Everything is tainted, at least in the eyes of the Jewish law. But what else is she to do? We long in this moment to see something inside Esther that explained how she understood herself in these times and and how to respond and and what she thought she was doing, but there's nothing there. Just this deathly silence. And we're like, is this okay? Is it all right for her to be doing this or not? That response apparently is not just a modern response to this passage. There's an ancient Greek version of the text that has an addition to it. A prayer where Esther explains her motives, as among other things. Here it is. This is her praying. You know everything, and you know that I hate the pomp of the wicked, and I loathe the bed of the uncircumcised and of any foreigner. From the day I arrived here until now, your servant has not delighted in anything except you, Lord, the God of Abraham. I mean, it's a great addition because it just cleans out the text, just disnifies the whole scenario. This is just a wonderful, worshipful Jew. She's fine. But really, is she? This is this impulse we have toward the book of Esther to iron out its complexity, to turn the gray into black and into white, to make it simpler and easier to swallow. This is the same thing we feel about our own lives, I suspect. About the spaces that just don't feel right. Like the relationships we're, we're part of and we've been summoned into that just are constantly awful. And we find our worst selves there all the time. All those patterns in our hearts of desire and sin that just won't leave. Or our presence in companies that drive us to, you know, the edge of the ecological precipice, to the the, the breaking of our world. But it's the place where we work. It's the job we have. Or our participation in the capitalist economy that entrenches injustice, but we have nowhere else to go. We are all compromised people in compromised places. None of us is squeaky clean and all of us are in the gray with our moral decisions not, never really clearly right or wrong. It's much easier to, to turn it black and white to say, well, that's wrong and that's right and I'm just good here and not good there. And... But what Esther is driving us to uncomfortably, is to ask the question, maybe God is with me in the gray. 
Maybe God is with Esther in the palace as she's responding with the agency she, she has and the time she has to find a way. Maybe he's with us, even in our compromised positions, in our compromised selves. And maybe the simple courage to keep responding is what is required from us. This is a wonderful thing the book of Esther gives us. God is absent objectively from the book. But that's so that we might question where he is really present. And we find him in the most remarkable spaces, in the spaces we don't expect to find him. There he is in the gray with us. But the one thing that we don't get here, as I'm going to finish on this, is how to navigate any of it. Really, Esther does not provide us with the answers we need. Esther is not an example of how to do political engagement in a compromised kingdom. Vashti doesn't really give us options either. And Xerxes is Xerxes. Here, though, is where the gospel really frees us to act, though compromised, in compromised spaces. You know, the Lord Jesus, to view his wealth and glory and power, would not take six months. It would take unending eternities. And his moral courage stepped him down from his throne into the world in such a way that undid every empire. And he walked wholly in compromised spaces and walked into the gray mud of the cross to free us from sin and death. You know, because he walked in this world for you, you are free. Your compromised self is forgiven and made whole. And you have a freedom now to look at your life, all of it, compromised and uncompromised, and say, how will I now respond? How will I now act? How now will I not just be swept along, but use what God has given me in his service? You see, the trick is in the gray to not just look at the gray, but to look up to Jesus. Have your eye on his glory and courage and his salvation that will free you to have courage in the compromised gray.
for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.